It is Wednesday, March 23rd, 2022. This is Messiah Matters number 380. Flying solo from the cockpit of the information station. My name is Caleb Haig. We're going to have a little bit different show today because obviously Rob is not here. But uh, I got some interesting feedback from our last show and I really wanted to come in and talk about it. And uh, initially... Rob and I weren't going to do a show today because Rob is out doing a or watching a uh, a lecture, and so we were going to take a break today. But I just thought, you know what? Why not jump on here and and uh, and have some fun anyway? And so I don't know if this is going to be a short show. It definitely could be, but uh, I've been in my happy place in the past couple of uh, couple of hours doing some research on First Corinthians eleven, which is what we talked about last week. And uh, so we're going to talk about it again. Um, I suppose I should just tell everyone, nonetheless, even though uh, Rob is not here, we'll just say if you want to be part of this conversation, you can do so by calling 253-465-3205. It's 253-465-3205. That is our comment line. You can also shoot us an email, chegatorresource.com, C-H-E-G-G at torresource.com. If you are not signed up for classes at Torah Resource Institute, you can do that by going to torresource.com. And uh, under the Institute, there is the 21-22 spring sign-up, and you can sign up now. And uh, classes actually start yesterday, so uh, you still have time, though. You can uh, sign up all the way until, I think, Sunday. And uh, Rob is one of the teachers at Tor Resource Institute, so go take a class from Rob. It will be a wonderful time, I'm sure. Also, if you want to hear any of our past shows, especially last week's, then you can do so by going to Messiah Matters. Dot com, And uh, that's our audio feed, but you can also view uh, all of our shows on, well, from show 200 on, on YouTube. Okay, well, oh, I suppose the last thing we need to say is don't forget to subscribe. And of course, like this video because it really does help us. Yeah, uh, in the chat room, the, the weird part about trying to do a show by myself is that uh, I try to uh, to, to maintain some kind of uh, conversation with the chat room. And that doesn't always work uh, because I'm trying to talk and I'm trying to read what's going on in the chat room at the same time. It's nice to have another voice here so that I can kind of uh, try to multitask. So uh, there might be some pauses in this in this episode as I try to catch up with, uh, with the conversation that is going on in the chat room. Okay, so... With all of that said, welcome. Let's have a good time. This is going to be a lot of fun. <clears throat> this is going to be a little bit more like, um, I don't know, maybe going down the study path of what I, you know, how, I, how I'm looking at different things. Okay. This comes in from a YouTube channel called Traditions. This is a comment which has since been deleted, and I'm not sure if they deleted it or if for some reason YouTube may have held it. I don't know. Anyway, uh, Traditions writes in and says, love you guys as brothers in the Lord, but maybe you should stretch next time before doing such mental gymnastics. The simplest explanation of the text is that Christ, and the text in question, by the way, for everyone who might need to know, is uh, 1 Corinthians 11. So that's the text that is being uh, viewed. And we're going to look at uh, Luke 22 in response to this. And we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 10. And 11. Okay, so the simplest explanation of the text is that Christ intended to, to do what the church claims he intended to do, 
establish holy communion. Okay, this is an interesting take, and I think it's a take that most most Christians would take today. Um, in fact, communion spans pretty much every denomination. Okay, so when we think, like, let's take two extremes. If you take the Baptist denomination and then you take, like, Mormonism, which I wouldn't even consider to be Christianity, but if you take those two, they both celebrate what we would consider communion. Um, and then, obviously, you have uh, other forms of that. So what I would ask, the very first thing that comes to mind is, when you say establish Holy Communion, what does that mean to you? Do you think that the church, uh, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, was part of that? Do you, I mean, do you accept transubstantiation or not? And all of the different trappings that go along with, with what we consider communion. You know, in the Fourth Lateran Council, they had to command that that uh, the people, that the lay person actually take communion. So before that, it was really only the priests that were taking communion. And the reason why is because people thought it was too holy. But at the same time, all I'm saying is that there's all these different levels of what people consider to be communion. Um, and when we bring in the notion of transubstantiation into it, all of a sudden communion gets very muddled. So now you're talking about the holy rite of the Eucharist as opposed to, uh, you know, a, a fellowship meal uh, that many denominations believe that they're taking today. So I think that this is an interesting take on this. I think we would need to define what you mean by the scriptures establish holy communion. Wh what, what exactly are we talking about when we say that? But let's go to some text here, and I'll tell you why I don't believe that the Bible is talking about quote-unquote holy communion. Uh-oh. Hang on, everybody. It looks like I have a... Okay. Hmm. Give me just a second. Let's see here. Uh, I have to shut down my Accordance Bible software, and we will get it back up here in just a second. Okay, so I can do this without without my Accordance up. Um, in, in Luke twenty two nineteen, it says, do this in remembrance of me. So the this is the source text for pretty much all communion, right? When we go to this, let's read the context of it too. So Luke 22, we'll say 19. And this is what it says. Let's start back a little bit. <laughs> let's start in 14 because this is where it gets really fun. And when the hour and when the hour came, he reclined a table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Okay, so right there, he has, he has placed this meal in its context, which is the Passover. For I tell you, I will not eat it, that is the Passover meal, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So this is still attached to, I will not eat of it, it being the Passover lamb, the Passover meal. For I tell you, I will, I will uh, that uh, from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant of my in my blood. Okay, so... Obviously, I think everyone knows the standard, uh, the standard interpretation of this from, from pretty much all Christianity is that Christ institutes something new. 
And this has been the focus of my study for a very long time. And I just, I, there, there's no way, I don't think anyone would be able to convince me at this point that Christ institutes something new here. Uh, the idea that this institutes a new rite or that the uh, that communion or the Eucharist comes from that, that Christ, it, this is how I think about it. Think about this. It would be like if grandpa loved, you know, it was his tradition all the time to celebrate Christmas. You know, he loves Christmas. He's got his tree. He, you know, he decorates it. He's got all of his favorite ornaments and everything. He loves the grandkids coming over as was his tradition, Right. They go up to pass to the temple for Passover, as was their tradition. Okay, so uh, basically, you have Grandpa sitting in the chair, and all of his kids are sitting around him on Christmas morning, and they're opening presents. And he says, "I have, I have just, you know, I have got terminal cancer, but I have longed to celebrate Christmas again with you. And when I'm gone, I hope you do this." in remembrance of me. You think his grandkids and his kids are going to sit there and go, oh, grandpa is telling us to celebrate a new a new festival, to do something completely different. No, of course not. It's in the context of the Passover. And this is too. He's earnestly desired to eat the Passover with his disciples and now do this in remembrance of me. The, the idea that this is instituting a new, a, new, uh, a, a, a new institute, a new celebration, I just don't see it in the text. I think when we, and even, even uh, scholars like Brant Petrie, who's, who's a Roman Catholic, would admit that this is placed within the, the context of Passover. And so when we look at Luke 22, I think that we, I think it's pretty impossible to separate this from, uh, from a Passover meal. And so the notion that this has instituted holy communion, I'm sorry, I just don't see it. Now, with that said, um, we can go now to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is the sticking point. And actually, I got a great email yesterday. This is the whole reason I'm doing this show by myself. Um, okay. This is from Xavier. And I want to read his last comment. For, I want to address his last comment first. He says, I must confess that I am not that surprise that you came to wrestle with this matter, given your desire to reform the Christian church from within as a self-proclaimed Baptist to some extent. I could be wrong, but it is very difficult for me to believe that your wrestling on the Lord's Supper does not have something to do with your current project, uh, projection. How far will this path take you? Will you help reform the church or will you will it simply absorb you until you make one compromise and then another until not much is left? I could be wrong in my assessment and I hope I am, but that is certainly how it appears right now. It grieves my heart. Okay. I, I told Rob that uh, looking at the First Corinthians passage from a banquet standpoint was going to bring this exact kind of comment, and that's fine. I, I'm, I knew it was coming, and, and that's fine. But some context is, is needed. I, m- many people will remember that I was doing my thesis work at Torah Resource Institute f- on the Eucharist. This is where my study of the Eucharist comes from, right? And the, uh, the passage of Luke twenty two nineteen. Do this in remembrance of me. So for those who don't know, and I'll explain this quickly, but for those who don't know, what I was attempting to do was, actually, I was attempting to argue that the words, do this in remembrance of me, was a declaration of deity. And the reason I was doing, the the way I was getting there was, when he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you, 
if he says, do this in remembrance of me, and it's a reference to the Passover itself, and if the lamb was actually on the table. In other words, he tells his disciples, go and prepare the Pascha. Okay, well, what's the Pascha? How do you prepare the Pascha? You take a lamb to the, to the priest, and they slaughter it, and they give you this, this lamb, and this sacrificed lamb. That's how you prepare the Pascha. And so if you take the Pascha lamb back, and it's sitting on the table, and he says, do this in remembrance of me. This is, uh, one thing that I've skipped over is the, the command to do this, this is actually two words from the Exodus passage. We are to do the Passover, and this is to be a, a memorial for a memory, a memorial for throughout your generation. So to do this, he's actually referencing language within the Exodus narrative. So he's it's, it's a direct... Uh, reference of the Passover. It's not something new. So all of this kind of works together. But the fact is, is that if if he says, do this in remembrance of me, and he's talking about the Passover, and the lamb is sitting on the pas- on, on the table, then what Christ is doing is, is saying to do a memorial offering to him. That's a de- that, that is a declaration of deity. So my thesis was an attempt to show that when Christ says, do this in remembrance of me, what he's actually saying is, I'm God. I'm Yodhevave. So this is the work that I was d- doing. Okay. With that said, I wrote a huge amount on not only whether or not the Last Supper is a, a Passover meal or if it was just a love meal, as many claim. And that was the first chapter of my thesis. The second chapter of my thesis was actually looking at the um, the textual issues. Many people don't know this, but there's actually a variant in uh, Luke 22, 19. And I shouldn't say there's a variant. It's just missing in a, in a key text. And that key text is the text, uh, the, the manuscript Beze, or Beza, uh, however you want to pronounce it. And the many people know Bart, who Bart Ehrman is. Bart Ehrman uh, is a, a, a scholar. He's a, a phenomenal Greek scholar. He is an atheist. And he has basically made his career attempting to disprove the Bible. And what Ehrman says is that Luke twenty two nineteen not being in Beza, even though it's a fifth, fourth, fifth century text, the tradition goes back to the second century. And what he says is that the Orthodox actually implanted this uh, this into all the other texts. Beza is the only text that has this missing. But what Bart Ehrman says is it's the most natural reading. And there's this is this is really the key to this whole argument. He says there's no good reason why they would have taken it out. There's only good reason why they would have put it in. And therefore, the Beza text is the original. All the rest have been have been tam- tampered with. So my whole second chapter of my thesis was to show, no, there is a good reason why Beza would have taken it out. So I look at where the manuscript was purported to be written and what was going on in that place at the time, so on and so forth. Okay, so the third chapter of my thesis was supposed to look at 1 Corinthians 11. The reason that my thesis is not done today is because when I came to 1 Corinthians 11, I mean, keep in mind, this is uh, this is years ago, okay? This is before uh, many of my I, uh, shifts in practice, okay? My theology really hasn't changed that much. What has changed is my theology in practice. Um, but so with that said, I come to 1 Corinthians 11 and I get stuck. And that's really the reason that my my thesis is not done. This has nothing to do with my want to reform the church. I think that we should all be wanting to reform the church. 
even people within the church, we should always want to reform back to what the, the Lord wants us to do and back to the Bible. We should reform back to the truth of the word of God. So th- the idea of, of a translation of 1 Corinthians 11, the reason that I have actually not looked at 1 Corinthians 11 from a banquet perspective is because I didn't want to give any credence to the notion that Christ instituted something new, which I still don't believe he did. I still don't believe he did. And that's when we're going to go back to, let's let's look at the chat room real quick and see what uh, we got. I got the book you recommended, Caleb, The Eucharistic Words of Jesus. That is a excellent book. If Hebrews illustri- uh, illustrates that all of the Mosaic Torah is in full effect, save for swapping out Levi in favor of Melchizedek, then it makes sense to conclude Passover equals communion. I would push against that. And uh, Christina Johnson says, or communion equals Passover. Um, I would push against that too, and uh, you'll see why in a few seconds. If the new covenant is not a mere renewal of Sinai, but is instead completely distinct, then it would make sense to distinguish since Passover rises via Moses and communion through Messiah. This is an interesting comment, and this is actually what I'm currently doing work in. What I'm doing work in is is, is the covenants. So within Reformed theology, well, just within theology, the, uh, Christianity has really centered on what they call the covenant of grace, okay? And the covenant of grace is this notion that there was a covenant of works with Adam. Covenant of works is if you don't eat the fruit, then you stay in covenant relationship with me in the garden. If you eat the fruit, then you are kicked out and you're no longer in covenant relationship with me in the garden. Okay, so so what scholars say is that this is based on a work. If if Adam does something, then this happens. If he doesn't do something, then this happens. This is the covenant of works. Um, and so obviously Adam fails in this. And then the uh, theology goes that in Genesis 3, God institutes the 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 covenant of grace. And ultimately what the covenant of grace is, is simply that God shows favor to those who have faith in Christ and that that will bring them back into covenant relationship with them. So these are the two main covenants that we don't really see necessarily within the scriptures spelled out like here is a covenant and here, you know, here's the sign of the covenant, so on and so forth. But um, just from logical systematic theology, we would come to the conclusion that there was some kind of an agreement, right, of a covenant of works, and then the covenant of grace. There's a lot that goes on here, and I'm, I'm not far enough into my study to, uh, to really nail all this down. But dispensationalism, dispensationalism is pitted against the uh, covenant theology. Within covenant theology, what they want to say is that the covenant of grace actually runs through all the covenants, but that the uh, that the way that it, the covenants are administered changes throughout time. Okay, I would disagree with this to some extent and say yes. I think that the hub, think of a wheel. I think that the hub is the covenant of grace, and that all the spokes that come off of it are the other are the covenants. So they all are attached to this covenant of grace. In other words, the Abrahamic covenant is the promise of not only the land rights, okay, but also the promise of the Messiah blessing all all the nations, all the nations, not just Israel. Then you have the Mosaic Covenant, which is the fact that we have a constitution for the the people of God, for the kingdom of God. Then you have the Davidic Covenant. This is the Messiah that is promised in the Abrahamic Covenant. So they're all attached. And in in the hub of this is the covenant of grace. 
where I disagree with, with there's many places I, I disagree with covenant theology, but where I disagree in this aspect is that the administration of the covenant is different throughout time. So for instance, I don't think that baptism has replaced uh, circumcision. I think that those are two different signs of the covenant of the two different covenants that are attached to the covenant of grace. And so the same would have to go with communion. If, if there's a big if here, if communion is instituted by God and is separate from Passover, then they have to work in tandem with each other. And I don't think that communion is actually instituted by God. We're going to talk about that as the church celebrates it today. We'll talk about that here in a few seconds. Let's just look at a couple more of these uh, comments. Lee says, the covenant of redemption between the Father, Son, and the Spirit was before the covenant of works in, in Reformed theology. That's true, or that's my understanding of it. Yes, that is true. So the, the um, covenant of redemption is that God the Father is always the Father, the Son is always the Redeemer throughout and outside of time, right? So before time was created, Christ is the Redeemer, and the Spirit is the uh, the spirit or the love between the Father and the Son or the spirit that will indwell the people. He is the paraclete that will come and help, right? The helper that will come from eternity past, so outside of time. Uh, I That's how I understand it as well. Uh, Lee, covenant theology, according to Reformed Baptists, hold that the covenant at Sinai is a reinstitution of the covenant of works. That's not exactly true. That is one, that is one uh, belief within covenant theology, but that, that is not across the board. In fact, most modern covenant theologians reject that. Um, and they say, uh, most covenant theologians say that that is not the case because they say that, uh, that, that it simply doesn't work if we look at, at the covenants. There's a great book, by the way. There is a great book, by the way. Um, and maybe I shouldn't recommend the book before I'm through with it. It's 1,300 pages, and I'm not, <laughs> I've am not. i barely broken into it. But uh, so far, it's been dynamite. It's called Kingdom Through Covenants. And uh, right now, I'm in the portion where he is described. I've gone through the portion where he's described three different main tenets, or the three different factions of dispensational theology. And now he's in, uh, now the two authors are describing covenant theology. And there's a significant amount of quotes that, uh, that are being shown uh, that do believe that the, old, uh, the older uh, understanding of covenant theology is just that. Uh, which Michael had, not Michael, I'm sorry, uh, someone in the chat room has put forward, which is that the Mosaic Covenant is a reinstitution of the covenant of works that was found within the garden. Um, however, more modern covenant theologians are are having to reject that. And I mean, honestly, they have to reject it because it's pretty obvious that the Mosaic Covenant is not a covenant of works. In fact, what is the new covenant? We're, we're way off in the weeds here. Okay, okay, let's let's try to get back. Thank you, everyone. I, I will come back to the uh, to the to the comments in the chat room in a few moments. Okay, let's get into this. Let's get into this email on First Corinthians eleven. This is a good one. By the way, Xavier, thank you for this great email. Um, I I do appreciate these kind of emails, and I actually at the end of our last show, I said if anybody has any any way that they want to reconcile this. Uh, this First Corinthians 11 passage. I've been wrestling with this for literally years, and um, I, I I think I'm just now starting to uh, 
get a handle on this. That's number one. But number two is even this morning I was doing some research and I decided to start looking at, uh, here's the problem with this is that I know that if I look at any Christian commentators, what are they going to say? They're going to say, this is the institution of the communion. So there's, there's really not a whole lot of help. So I was looking for commentaries where maybe somebody might give just some kind of a different view or something like that. I found some interesting stuff. Okay, 1 Corinthians 11. This is from Xavier. He says, I watched your most recent episode on 1 Corinthians 11, having already been very familiar with your past position, as well as your father's on the Lord's Supper. While you admitted that your current shift to, to, to support the Christian practice of communion. Let's pause. Okay. So the question is, am I supporting the Christian practice of communion? I would say no. I don't believe that Christ instituted the Christian practice of communion. That's not what I'm trying to say. And if that's what people got from last show, then I apologize. And, the, and this is really a, I think it's me trying to pack all of what I have thought on this into one show. And maybe that's a disservice to everyone to, uh, who's, who's listening. What I actually believe 1 Corinthians is doing is talking about um, communal meals among believing communities. So if you want to say that that's communion, if you want to say that that's the Eucharist, okay, we could talk more and more about that. And that's kind of one of the places I tried to go last week is that, okay, well, if, if a Christian community is sitting down, does the food matter? That's really kind of the, the, the portion of the conversation that I tried to put into this, uh, into the end of that show. <laughs> and maybe that was too big of a disservice to everyone uh, because I probably didn't explain it well. In other words, the question is, what is the what is the food that actually comes? And, and Paul even says this in 1 Corinthians 11. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 11. Um, let me open up a new tab here. We're going to go 1 Corinthians 11. So it seems to me that what he's saying is that food doesn't matter, right? Uh, he says... Uh, Okay, as often as you uh, therefore eat bread concerning person, examine himself. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, that is why many of you are weak. But if you judge, I'm in uh, 1131 at this point, truly would not judge. But when you judge by the Lord, we are disciplined. So then, my brothers. Oh, yeah, uh, 34. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. 33. So then, my brother, my brothers. When you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. To me, that it seems to me like what's happening in this passage right here is that uh, <laughs> is that he's saying that it's not really about food. What he's talking about, no matter what he's talking about, is not really about food. So, so I'm I'm kind of at the end of the conversation um, in terms of of bringing it back to communion. The question is, is if a, this is kind of the, the thought process. Okay, if he's talking about banquet meals or he's talking about what later I think is actually, and I need to do more work on the notion of an agape meal, but if he's talking about uh, agape meals, that is love meals among communities, and we'll talk about what this may be and, and how, how this would be structured, but if he's talking about that, um, 
then it's not really about food. What it's about is the communion between believers. And when I say communion, I don't mean the commu- the right of communion that the Christian church should just practice today. It's really about fellowship between believers, right? Remember in the first century, eating together actually is seen as a form of worship, okay? And, th- and we see this throughout the scriptures. So for instance, in uh, Galatians 2, uh, Peter, why does he... Why does he distance himself from the Gentiles when they're eating together? Well, the answer is is that in in uh, what is it, Second Maccabees, Third Maccabees, I forget. In uh, one of the oh, it's in Jubilees. I'm sorry, it's in Jubilees. They say that you're not allowed to eat with with uh, with unbelievers because they're pagans, because they're unclean pagans. Well, why would that matter? And the reason why is because eating meal together, like a fellowship meal, was seen as a form of worship, and so. Now, if we want to frame 1 Corinthians in that, and we'll do that in a few seconds. Anyway, all of this to say, the question is, is if we're with a bunch of believers, okay, and they're going to say we are fellowshipping together, we're going to we're gonna unite together in our faith, and we're going to do that through a quote-unquote meal, it doesn't matter how much they're eating. That's my, my question. I'm not saying that this legitimizes that this gives legitimacy. There we go to uh, to the communion as a right. You know the the notion that uh, that Christians receive grace through the elements. I think that this is wrong. I don't think that this is true. I I think that there are so many problems that stack up. But all of that to say, I guess the final question that I have at the end of everything is, if there are believers who are coming together and trying to fellowship together, and they do that by participating in and taking some bread and some juice or wine, is that does that count as uh, as fellowship together? That's my question. I, I'm not saying that it legitimizes um, uh, the the Eucharist or communion or anything like that. So I think that there's a misperception right off the bat that I'm trying to legitimize communion. That's not what I'm trying to do. What I'm actually saying, and this is this is the key argument that I'm going to try to make in, in this show. The key argument that I'm trying to say is that Paul, it seems to me like what he might be talking about is com- communal banquet meals as a community. I'm not saying that he's instituting communion. I'm not saying that he's instituting something new or that he understands Christ to be instituting something new, but that what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 11 is actually communal meals. Okay, now hold on to that thought for a few minutes. So I would reject this this first statement that while you admitted that your current shift to support the Christian practice of communion, which I'm not trying to do, not uh, to the exclusion of the Passover, obviously, is not set in stone, I was incredibly disappointed that you are leaning toward it being the best interpretation of the text, along with the annual Passover meal, which we both agree on. Okay, so we both agree that the Passover meal is the it needs to be celebrated. Fair enough. Rather than write on the entire essay, an entire essay, so on and so forth, uh, he wants to show why he so strongly disagrees. Okay, I strongly disagree with your current leaning and consider it damaging to the body of Messiah. I only want to pre- uh, present a few things for uh, your prayerful consideration. Okay, let's stop for just a second. What's one of the things that we, as a as pronomians, okay, as those who believe that the law should be kept today. I assume that most of the people that are in the chat room today and many of our listeners and watchers are people who believe in pronomian theology. That is that the law should be kept. So I just assume that most of our audience believe that or are celebrating Passover. You're going to celebrate celebrate Passover come, in, come this, this April, okay? Okay. If that's the case, then... 
I'm trying to I'm trying to kind of remember where my my uh, my thought pattern was going here. Oh yeah yeah okay. So if that's the case, let's let's ask this question. Sorry, let's ask this question. Do we look at the Christian church and say there has been uh, interpretations because of bias within within their interpretation of the scriptures? And the communion would be a perfect example of this. And I think the answer for anyone who holds the pronomian theology is yes. In other words, why did the Christian church get rid of the festivals? It's not because they looked in the scriptures and said, oh, the festivals have been done away with. It's because of the outside bias of, of various councils and various interpretations of scripture, right? Okay, well, same with the Eucharist. Why is the Eucharist instituted and eventually becomes the bread and wine? Is it because of, of uh, what the scriptures say about do this in remembrance of me? Or is it because of outside interpretation? In other words, I think that that what's happening is we believe from a pronomian perspective that much of the many times within within standard Christianity, people have looked at the text and they have been biased towards it. So what I'm trying to say here is let's try to give the text its full weight. In other words, let's not be biased just because we want something to be. Now, I don't look if if God is instituting uh, a new a new rite, which is communion, then by all means, let's let's celebrate that. I don't think that's what's happening. So I, I think there's some misunderstanding it here. OK, but at the same time, I think that we need to approach first Corinthians 11 and we need to be honest with the text. Is it actually talking about Passover? I don't know, man. I think it's. I think that. I think that's hard. I think it's hard to to say that he's talking about Passover, and we're going to talk about that. I just want to look at the chat room one more time. Um, Passover. How can children eat it if they are? Yeah. So, and Lee brings up a great point. If First Corinthians eleven is about is Passover, how can children eat it if they are to examine themselves? That's a great question. Okay. Let's keep going with this email. So scripture says to keep the ordinance of Passover in its season. That is its appointed time. Exodus 13.10. Thou shalt therefore keep the ordinance in its season, in his season, the Moed, from year to year. And Numbers 9.2-3 uh, says the same thing. Passover is an appointed sacred time of Yodhe I completely agree with you. I believe that any attempt to impose the sacred status of Passover on another day, which is not intended to celebrate the Passover specifically, violates the implied instruction in Exodus 13 and Numbers 9 not to remove Passover from its appointed season. I actually agree with you on this. I don't think that... but. Then the question is, is, do you actually think that the that the Christian church believes that they are celebrating Passover when they celebrate the communion? Because I don't. When what I believe the Christian church, my understanding of communion has always been that the Christian church says the Passover is done away with, that it no longer, that it's kept spiritually, right? Does everybody remember when we were trying to talk to Jeff Durbin and Jeff Durbin said something interesting? He said, yeah, we celebrate the Passover, but we do it spiritually. We no longer do it by cleaning out leaven. We clean out malice from our lives. So I see this as a pretty decent understanding of what the church believes, that this has become a spiritual right under the new, under the new covenant, and that there is a new institution, that the, that the uh, administration of the sacrament moves to a different administration, which is communion. That's how I've understood it. I don't think that people in the Christian church are sitting there with the wafer and the juice and saying, this is the Passover. That's not what I think that they that they believe. And so, I mean, I fully agree that anytime you take a, a man-made tradition that is against Scripture, so the idea that you're sacrificing Christ every single time you take communion, this is 
wrong. And not only is it wrong, but I think that it's, I think it, I think it goes against scripture. And so if, if you're celebrating the Eucharist with a congregation that believes in transubstantiation, I, I think that's wrong. I don't think we should be doing that. But if you, if you, but I, but I don't see the communion as a, as a, uh, saying this is now what the Passover is. I just don't see that. Um, so let's keep going. You lean toward the position that First Corinthians 11 is about both the Passover meal, but also other meals within the body of Messiah. Yeah, that's where I'm leaning. Since eating is a form of worship, correct. Besides the problem uh, <clears throat> that I do not see this anywhere in the text, your current leaning infringes upon the sacred status of Passover and risks making it profane or common. You risk elevating a fellowship meal, important as it is, to the status of a sacred commandment appointed, uh, uh, commanded appointed time, which we are to keep in a specific season, and we don't keep Passover in the winter. Fellowship meals are important, such as the breaking of bread, but they should not be elevated beyond their intended status. I think that your leaning on this text would inevitably do just that. Okay, let's go to the text. Let's go to the text. So 1 Corinthians, I want to start in 1 Corinthians 10. <clears throat> and I'll show you kind of why I think this, why I'm starting to think this. Um, now, once again, uh, you know, here's the one thing that I do want to say about Xavier. Uh, he is the only person who sent me a uh, well-thought-out email about this topic. So for that, I, I am truly grateful. Thank you very much, Xavier. At the same time, I don't think that there has been, uh, within his email, there has not been a good understanding of what 1 Corinthians 11 actually would be talking about. In other words, you, Xavier, I would encourage you to break down the entire chapter for me. And maybe not break down the entire chapter, but certainly towards the end, right? When he talks about uh, don't eat it, you know, unless you... Well, we could read the actual text, but we would need to actually know what it is that he's talking about. Okay, let's start in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. So he's obviously placing this, at least this portion, he's talking about the Passover. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Is he, so the instant question that I'm going to ask is, is he talking about the Passover? Is he talking about the Passover lamb and the, and the Passover meal? And the answer is no, he's not. He shifts it. He moves from the, the baptism in the sea, which obviously is a reference to the Passover, okay? But, he, but then he talks about the rock, which is not during the Passover time, and he talks about the spiritual food, okay? Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So he's talking about the fact that, I mean, right now, where is he centering this? He's centering this in the fact that the people who came out of Egypt and went through the water, what did they do? They followed after other gods. Even in the wilderness, they didn't trust God. And so the point that he's making here is, not about eating the Passover lamb itself. He's not talking about eating that. He's, he's not talking about that celebration. He's talking about what the heart of the people was in the wilderness. Okay. So they all ate the spiritual food. Okay. Now, uh, verse six. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. 
do, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Where is that? Is that within the Passover narrative? Is he still talking about the Passover meal? No, it's in Exodus 32, 6. So at this point, he's not like he's using the the Passover and the people in, in the wilderness as an example, but he's not centering this on the Passover meal itself, right? Okay, so context here does matter, I think. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell into this single day. Once again, we're not talking about the Passover. We're in a different place. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So this whole point is that he's taking the the entire uh, wandering in the wilderness and saying that the heart must be right. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Okay, now this is the this is probably the most interesting thing that I've found today. Uh, in verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? What are, okay, so so far what I've heard is two interpretations. Right? And those interpretations is obviously it's communion. He's talking about bread and wine, it's obviously communion. Or it's obviously Passover. He's talking about Passover. Okay, now remember that I've explained that the I, the elements of the Passover meal, as we have them today within Judaism, that is the four cups and and all and all that kind of stuff, was not extant in the first century. What we have is probably more like the dapnon. It follows the dapnon, so you have a, a cup before, a cup after, so on and so forth. The thing that's so interesting is that in 16, he calls it the cup of blessing. Later, uh, later translators they actually change this. They actively change this in certain manuscripts to to Eucharist, to Thanksgiving, the cup of Thanksgiving, the cup of, the cup of Eucharistai. Uh, and that's not what it says. It's, that's not what it says. The early manuscripts all say the cup of blessing that, was, that we bless. What is the cup of blessing? Guess what? It's not found anywhere in the apostolic scriptures except for in 1016. It's not found anywhere in the Septuagint. It's not found in the Didache. The only place that I could find the exact term cup of blessing was in rabbinical texts, late rabbinical texts. We're talking 10th century. I mean, 7th, if you believe that the, the Talmud was written in the 7th century. The Talmud is the, is the place that cup of blessing continues to pop up. And what is the cup of blessing? It's the cup that they use as the pinnacle uh, cup to mark the end of a meal. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to say that this is carryover from the Dapnon, but certainly the Dapnon has a cup that, that marks the end of the meal. The Birchat Hamazon, the, the, the cup of blessing in rabbinical texts is found in the Birchat Hamazon, which is the blessing after the meal, to mark the end of the meal. So it's a, it's a ceremonial cup. Here's the thing, is that while I'm not going to put any weight onto the rabbinical text and say, aha, see, that we can read this back into the first century, that's not what I'm going to do. But what I am going to say is this, we know that the, that the Roman Dapnon 
had a cup that marked the beginning and the end of the meal. It was a ceremonial cup and it was blessed and it was blessed to a deity. Okay. If this is cultural and Christ uses this and he blesses God with a with a cup to mark the end of the meal, it would make sense that Paul would call this the cup of blessing. And so if he's calling it the cup of blessing, I don't see this in any way attached to communion. What I see this attached to is, once again, if we take wine and we take bread as the elements that represent the bread represents the meal proper, that is the eating of, of food. So bread represents all food within the meal. We see this not only in uh, in uh, first century literature, we see it in the Qumran literature as well. Bread is representative of the whole meal, okay? And I mean, we even see that today if, if within Judaism, within Judaism, and not that that's a good example, but within Judaism, what do you say? Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread or food from the earth. Lechem, bread, is considered food. So it's the same thing in the first century. I, I know that sounds weird, but that's just the way it is. Food, bread represents the entire meal. What I think the cup of blessing is, is, is a representation of the ceremonial aspects of a meal. In other words, that this meal is set apart. Anyone can break bread at the beginning of a meal and say grace. Okay? And it seems that this happens in the first century. We know that Christ does, does that, right? He breaks bread and, and gives thanks. But the cup, what's the cup? Well, the cup, I think, actually marks a ceremonial meal. And so when he says the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? I'm leaning towards the idea that this actually is neither the Passover nor, the, nor communion, that this is actually just a ceremonial meal in general. The cup of blessing that we bless is not participation in the blood of Christ. In other words, if we're seeing a, a, a meal as a form of worship among believers, then is this not partici- participation in the blood of Christ? In other words, why, how are we connected how are we members of the kingdom? It's through the blood of Christ. I am your brother in the Lord because of the blood of Christ and the participation and the bread of participation in the body. In other words, we are united. We are citizens of that kingdom through the death, resurrection, and ascension of, of, of our Lord. Because there is one bread, who, we, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel, and now he's going to take it back to Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Now, once again, I think that he's placing this in terms of. Now, it could be argued. Let's let's say the other side. It could be argued that this is a cup and a and bread in reference to the Passover meal proper, and that uh, when he says consider Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Okay. But he's not, this is still not uh, Passover proper. And the reason why is because he says sacrifices. It's not the sacrifice. It's not the sacrifice. It's the sacrifices. Participants in the altar. So he's talking about meals in general. At least that's the way I'm reading this. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So in other words, you can't go and have a ceremonial meal with the demon, with, with, you know, with 
things offered to demons in the uh, you know the cult down the road and then come and fellowship with the body. That's not how it works. We see parallels to this also in uh, Acts 15, right? What are the four regulations that that the Jerusalem Council gives to the Gentiles? They all have to do with cult with cult practice. In other words, you cannot go down to the cult temple and and you know offer to your your false god and then come in and and be with brothers and sisters. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than that? Okay. So now let's move to First Corinthians eleven, and ultimately he continues on right. So he, he talks about the fact that if I go to somebody, if I go and I eat with Gentiles and somebody says, hey, that, that food is offered to idols, I shouldn't eat it because of their conscience. And this gets into a whole other aspect of, of the marketplace within Corinth and the fact that they would give um, incantations over the entire, the entire marketplace and all of the meat. A lot of the meat, uh, McGowan has, has shown that a lot of the meat that, that, was, offered, that was sold in the, uh, in the marketplace was actually left over from, from um, sacrifices in pagan temples. So they would, they would sell it, whatever was left over. So the point here, I think, is that Paul Paul doesn't want you to go and participate in the pagan ritual down at the cult temple. But if you go to the market and you buy some food and somebody says that was offered to an idol, I didn't participate in sacrificing it to an idol. So it doesn't matter. I think that's the point. Is that that doesn't matter. What matters is whether or not we're doing these things to another to false gods. In other words, is idolatry part of our lives or not? Okay. Let's go to 1 Corinthians. Um, so he talks about head coverings, and he kind of goes into um, what a person should wear. I think it's actually hair. Let's move on. So we're going to come down to 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. He's going to say this twice, when you come together. So he frames this whole thing in the terms of when you come together. Another reason that I'm leaning towards this being a banquet and not necessarily the Passover is because he says this twice, but he doesn't say when you come together for Passover. He just says when you come together as an ecclesia, as an assembly. So, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as an ecclesia, I hear that there are divisions among you and I believe it in part. So is he saying that when you come together uh, for the Passover? No, he's clearly not because he's saying when you come together, there's divisions among you. This is a general statement. For the um, for the first place, when you come together as an okay, uh, verse nineteen. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, that's three, isn't it? It is not the Lord's supper that you eat. Now, obviously. Obviously, the Christian church is going to say this is communion. What's the word? What is the word? The Lord's Supper? It's the Lord's Dapnon. That's the word. The, the Lord's Banquet. The word in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Dapnon that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead in his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the ecclesia of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord. And this ultimately is the crux passage now. 
So I think that it's obvious that up until 20 through 22, I think it's obvious he's not talking about Passover. He he's he's not. He's talking about banquets. He's talking about coming together as a community. He's talking about fellowship as a community. So now the crux passage comes in. And obviously he's going to reference 1 Corinthians 11:23. The ultimate question that we need to ask at this point, no matter what your preconceived notions are, the question is, does he move from general banquet etiquette and general fellowship with the community to a specific meal? And that is the Passover. I would argue in some ways he does. But the question is, is does he do that to show how banquets should be, uh, should be uh, taken as a community? Or is he talking specifically about that, that festival? Now remember, if he's talking about that festival, he says in 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 chapter five, therefore celebrate the feast. He's very specific in it. He's not he he doesn't come and 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 hint around what he's saying. He says therefore celebrate the feast. But is he still talking about that six chapters later? Uh, let's just look in the chat room real quick. Uh, they weren't coming, yeah, Lee, they weren't coming together once a year, only once a year. I agree with that. So it should be a meal shared separate from Passover, but not a communion type thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the next conversation that could be had is this idea of how pronomian believers view communion. Because at this point, what I'm talking about has nothing to do with communion. What I'm talking about, at least... I mean, maybe in a disassociated way it might, but what I'm talking about is simply the fellowship that that uh, a community has. In other words, when you go to a church or a community and you guys have your service, a lot of the time, I grew up in a congregation where what would happen is they, they would go through their service, it was a very long service, two and a half, three hours, okay? They'd get done and everybody would break and then everybody would eat together like eat a full meal together, right? It was, it was like a, a potluck for a significant portion of my life. You'd go and you'd eat the potluck. And um, as, I, as I grew up and got older, I realized this potluck is actually just as much a, a part of the worship service as the liturgical portion that we said before. So that's what I think Paul is talking about, is this idea of sitting down and, and sharing a meal together as a community. Now, are there still problems with that? Yeah, I think that there are still problems with the way that we view 1 Corinthians 11. But honestly, I think that there are problems no matter which which uh, way you're going to lean. Uh, sure, that would still be once a year, not communion taken regularly. I've seen it done both ways at separate times in the same church. Yeah, I have too, actually. Um, I've seen all sorts of stuff done. Actually, when I when I was very young, uh, the church that I attended moved from a once a week communion to a once a month communion. And then honestly, when we moved, I was very young when um, maybe seven years old, when we moved to doing Passover, we started, we just considered that a once a year communion. That's kind of how we saw it. Um, yeah, we eat together every Friday night and that's kind of where I'm at. We try to eat with brothers and sisters in the Lord and we come together and, and fellowship together. Okay, let's keep going with first Corinthians because this is actually the crux passage. Okay. He says, starting in 23, verse 23, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is, is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I think he's recentering our, our, our minds to, I mean, he is recentering our minds to 
the to the Passover, to the Last Supper, right? In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. Why does he do that? Why does Paul do that? Is this a legitimate variant that he's learned? Or does Paul implant this for a theological reason? I don't know. I don't know. This, this has been uh, really a, a very, uh, this has hung me up a lot. Why does it change? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this. It should be in remembrance of me, but it's not. He says, do this as often as you drink it. So then the question, I mean, one of the interpretations that I would posit, that I would put forward for consideration is that he's taking this and saying, as often as you drink it, he's taking this cup that is representative of the Passover meal, but it's really a ceremonial meal for a Dapnon in general. In other words, as often as you do a ceremonial uh, meal with your community, do this in remembrance of me. Now, I, I think that our brother, Xavier, here, he says that he's very offended by um, the notion that that would that we would that this would make the Passover meal common. Um, I understand where he's coming from on this, and and I don't want people to think that I'm suggest suggesting that we should put communal meals on the same par with the Passover meal. It's it's not the same. The Passover meal, and to be honest with you, I don't think that that could ever happen, at least not in my family. Passover for us is a huge deal, and we look forward to it. My kids look forward to it all year round. I look forward to it all year round. It is it is the night that we look forward to all year round. It's it's the best it's the best night of the year. And so to say that that my kids are gonna uh, think in some way that uh, that our community you know meal after service is going to be on par with that. I just don't see that. I think that there might be a theological, uh, a theological play that's going on here to try to, to center the Corinthian community and maybe our communities in the fact that when we sit down for a meal, we should do so in fellowship with one another and not to be broken up. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, and once again, if we are taking this out of the notion that this is a specific cup and a specific bread, but simply representative of a meal proper with a ceremonial aspect to it, that we should do this, that, that we proclaim the Lord's death. And <laughs> this fits really well into my, to my uh, suggestion that this is a banquet, that this is talking about any banquet. And the reason why is because how is it that we come together? We, we come together as a body, as, as citizens of the kingdom of God, and we, and, and we proclaim that we are citizens through the fact that we're eating this meal together because we are worshiping the same God, and we are doing that only because of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. So this would happen no matter if it's Passover or not. Whoever therefore eats the bread and, or drinks the cup, once again, if we just think in terms of general meal with a ceremonial aspect, uh, but in the context of a community uh, in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now, this is, this is going to hang up no matter what. I think that this is going to hang up no matter what. Leah in the chat room has already said it, uh, that what do we do with children? 
right? The church has tried to, uh, to protect the the Eucharist and the communion and say that children aren't allowed to have it. Even Pado Baptists, people who baptize children, uh, say the same thing. Okay, um, but ultimately, if we see this as a banquet meal, I would say I, I agree with Rob. Remember last week, Rob said that uh, if a if a person, a father, comes into the community. Um, and then his, you know, his faith and his reflection covers his family. I would tend, I would tend to agree with that. And maybe people could say that about the Passover and about communion as well. Um, what I would say though, is that this, if my interpretation, if my, if my current suggestion is correct, what this would do is it would show that, uh, the ecclesia is not necessarily for unbelievers. In other words, the mega churches that are just trying to bring people in so that they can tell them the gospel, that's not actually the function of the church. If the interpretation that this is talking about communal meals together is correct, then what it does is it shows that the ecclesia, the church itself, the the, the church coming together, the church proper, um, and its ceremonies are for believers, and that uh, a believer should be built up there and then sent out to uh, to to evangelize, and that we shouldn't be bringing people in to evangelize them in the church. So I, I think that this is a sticky passage, no matter what. Uh, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. The body. What body is he talking about? Is he talking about the body of Christ, or is he t- because he's referenced he's referenced the body and blood of Christ? in verse 27, but he's also said that we are all one body. He, he keeps going back and forth, so it's hard to discern. Uh, according to Greek, I mean, in, in within the Greek, you'd have to say that he's talking about the body of Christ because that would be the nearest antecedent, that, this would be the antecedent to the nearest subject. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. Anyway, um, okay, let's look at the chat room real quick. Some let t- uh, kids take communion. Uh, yeah, it depends what you mean by kids. Usually the kids have to be baptized. Well, the Passover lamb wouldn't be present for these community meals. Okay, that's true. Paul was maybe a visionary of how the Jews would need to fellowship slash worship God in their homes after the destruction of the temple. Scott, I agree with you on that. However, we need to remember that Paul's writing to the Corinthians. Uh, were there Jews in the Corinthian church? Yeah, there were probably some Jews in the Corinthian church, but was it predominantly Jewish? No, I don't think so. I think the Corinthian church was predominantly Gentile. And so he's writing to the Gentiles uh, and he's writing to a specific community. And that doesn't mean that it doesn't apply to us, but obviously the barrier of Jew Gentile has been totally broken down for Paul. He doesn't see that anymore. He sees body of Christ. He sees, he sees uh, citizens within the kingdom. And so then how does the, and what, uh, the other thing that we need to realize is that the Corinthian church does not have the Passover lamb. So if he is talking about Passover, okay, um, he's talking about a lambless Passover meal. At that point, it's just a date non anyway, right? <laughs> no, not really. I, I don't actually believe that. I think that, uh, I think the Passover, uh, the Passover is a very specific meal and, I would argue, and I have argued, that I believe that we as believers actually do can fulfill the entire Passover um, meal because we have the lamb, we have the true lamb at our tables, which is Christ. 
In other words, if we have faith in Christ, then we have the lamb at the table. Okay, the body of the lamb in preparation. Let's see here. I'm just looking over the comments before we uh, before we sign out here. Uh, didn't most of the early church eat bread and wine together as a symbol of unity and a remembrance of the Lord, or am I wrong? That So that is true in terms of bread. And so once again, the research that I've done, and I would love to see any, any uh, anything else, but the research I've done shows that bread was a representation of any food. So you would break bread and say a blessing over it to uh, to start any meal, and then and bread was the staple. It was the staple food. Oftentimes, bread was all people had to eat. So then, what was wine? Wine was a representation of a ceremonial meal. That's how I understand it, um, and that comes from the Dapnon. So um, anyway. Okay, before I sign out, I just want to say this. I think that we can have the conversation about communion after this, after this conversation. But I want to make it very clear. I am not suggesting that 1 Corinthians 11 or Luke 22 are in any way instituting what the church believes today as communion. I don't believe that that is, was the intent. In fact, I think that church history alone shows us that the early, uh, the early uh, believers, the apostles, they believed that the that uh, they kept what uh, would be considered the communion as a meal, and they did that. Some of them all the way into the fourth century. So people weren't taking bread and wine and saying, "Okay, this is it." That's not what's going on in the first century. Uh, certainly, the apostles didn't do that. There's some evidence that uh, John celebrates Passover all the way, you know, for the rest of his life, basically. Paul certainly did. He talks about it. He goes to the temple. So certainly, I think that there's one of two interpretations for me. It's either that 1 Corinthians, obviously, Luke 22 is talking about the Passover. 1 Corinthians 11 is either talking about a Passover or it's talking about community meals and fellowship in general. And those are the two those are the two uh, interpretations that I would I would lean to right now. The notion that that uh, the communion as the church has it today, I don't find that anywhere in Scripture. Not only do I not find it in Scripture, but if anyone who does who does believe in a, a communion or a Eucharist wants to show me where the Bible says that we receive grace through com- communion, I would I would love to see that. Because I've looked and I can't find it. If the presence of God is present at the Seder meal, why is the Catholic position so much a stretch? The Catholic position is such a a stretch because they believe every time that they eat the communion or eat the Eucharist, they're re-sacrificing the body and blood of Christ. They believe in transubstantiation. They believe that the, the elements of bread and wine actually become the body and blood of Christ, that it physically changes into the, the body and blood of Christ, although they say that it still retains the same taste and look of bread and wine. And so, um, and we know that Christ was crucified once for all time. The reformers just go to town on the, on the Catholic mass. Uh, and Calvin and Luther are really fun to, to read when, concerning the Mass and how this is an abomination. Um, it's the same kind of thing as like uh, those who believe in, in paedo-baptism. Um, you know, one baptism, we have one baptism into Christ. And when is that? I think it's when we, we have faith. And so I think that there's a lot of, we could talk a lot about that. Anyway, so I mean, I, I would love to hear some feedback on this. And then also what I would like to do is I would like to talk about communion and whether or not 
Um, maybe next week we'll talk about whether or not uh, believers, uh, Christians, or those who are pronomian should participate with believers in, in a communion. I've always said yes to that. Um, unless it is, unless it, uh, the the community believes in transubstantiation, um, and but I will admit that Xavier has given some food for thought in terms of the idea of uh, are these people believing that this is a Passover? I don't think that they are. Um, if they were, would that change things? It's possible. Um, I think that there were some some good passages brought up there. Okay. Um, hopefully Rob is having a good, uh, a good time watching his, uh, his lecture today. And, uh, I hope that we will all be back next week. Um, and yeah, I hope that this conversation is does something good for everybody. I hope you've learned something, please. Actually, before we sign off, I do want to give, uh, this one more time. If you want to make a comment, please give us a call. 253-465-3205. 253-465-3205. You can also shoot me an email. C-H-E-G-G I think it's interesting that we're getting, um, conversation from both sides of the debate. In other words, people who believe that, uh, Luke 22 is obviously instituting a communion they 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 are going to stand strong and write in on that. And then you have people who believe that it's a Passover. They're going to stand strong. They're going to write in on that. I have no problem with that. But I just think that it shows how how um, ingrained our our ideas of from either side are. And all I'm trying to do is be honest with the text. Um, and so I'm I'm willing to I'm willing to look at the text uh, from basically any point of view. Um, but once again, I just don't see the standard communion as being uh, taught anywhere in Scripture. All right. I hope that this conversation, at least my part of it, ha- has done at least one thing. That is to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Why? You know why. Because Messiah matters. Mm-hmm.